Hello everyone, welcome to SecTools podcast by InfoSec Campus. This is episode 32. I'm your host of the show, Sanup Thomas. Today we have Chris M, aka Cookie Engineer with us. Chris, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for welcoming me. <laughs> Great. Um Chris, uh, to start with uh, for the audience who have uh, probably not really known about your work uh, or your name, uh, they might have known uh, the the handle uh, we started in that era era and now uh, things are getting more more in person. Um why don't you start uh, about uh, how did you start into tech or um, your journey into infosec? Oh, that's uh, my start. Oh gosh. I guess it's it somehow started like right from the start like when I first get my um actually when I was like getting my computer I was like delivering like papers newspapers and stuff and 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 saving money to to buy my first uh, 386 was like a used one from my uncle or something and my other uncle actually was the cooler one because he didn't uh, was using like windows to program stuff or something so it was like windows 311 or so at the time but my other uncle was like more an amiga and i don't know c64 turbo kind of guy so he was like um having like a huge collection literally he, he at one point he was moving and then while moving he said hey how about you get my old hardware so you can try it out and stuff you're you're smart you'll figure it out and stuff and literally i had like a huge wall full of boxes with newspapers in them and all of them were like having like all kinds of assembly codes and instructions and games and everything in there so back at then the, those those papers were just containing program code and i didn't realize it at the time I was just typing it up and stuff and trying it out right and um, and i don't know five or 10 years later i realized oh, holy shit i actually know assembly i know how it works because like this is what i learned as a child and um so i started with like the 6502 so when it comes to cpus and stuff but later on um i don't know of course at some point everybody has to get used to windows and the missing infosec and network security infrastructure there and um and i don't know i think like when i was like 15 or something i started with linux like in the sense that i that um Ubuntu Depot Drake was something that came out at the time and it was like super amazing to see like the whole canonical infrastructure that they spawned in like the desktop ecosystem when it comes to Linux. And I don't know if I've been happy ever since on Linux and yeah, at some point I switched to Arch Linux like everybody does. <laughs> so so that's also like something that um, probably most people will do it at some point even if they don't realize it yet. But um yeah. Yeah your blog about um um Ubuntu or Arch Linux I ju- I was just reading reading through that on the other day and it's interesting and you know don't really realize about it um but yeah it's it's a fun fun read definitely so so those <laughs> those in the audience who have not um, uh, read that article I will give a link in in the um in the page go and read about it it's fun read definitely <laughs> yeah i mean i mean like linux and all the ecosystems behind all have like different kinds of problems they're trying to trying to tackle and I don't know the 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 source of open nature is and and the, if you have like an open source project you always have like governance problems right so um integrating everything with upstream integrating like your patches that you have developed for your linux distribution with the upstream project is like usually a task for years literally until you actually are able to reach the people sometimes and i don't know sometimes you have like wasted projects that are somehow part of the core infrastructure like the mime types they are managed on bitbucket by an abandoned repository where the maintainer replies like every 2 years or something and you're like okay cool maybe not <laughs> and um and yeah i guess like 
Arch Linux tries to be as upstream compatible as possible. And that's why I like it so much, because if you have like a GitHub project with like hundred stars, there's at least one Arch Linux user there that has a package already for that. So that's actually very nice, like using it in production and trying out projects on GitHub, for example, and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you started as like pretty core tech and what uh, drives you to switch into InfoSec? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, back then, like, when I was like living in Frankfurt, a friend of mine that had like more experience with assembly and reverse engineering, um, I don't know, we joined forces and we made something like a consultancy company or something that was focusing on red teaming at the time. So it wasn't called red teaming back then. We, we did just security audits and yeah. I don't know, red teaming was like a term that was used like five years later or something everywhere. But basically we were doing red teaming and we were being paid to like get access to infrastructure, to important documents, even to physical access to, to get like physical access to like safes that were guarded, like the, like the company secret or something. And um, there were also like a couple of banks in there, for example, and they always had their own walls and stuff like that. And we tried to break in and everything. And we get, we, but at some point we had like problems with legal, right? Because everybody tries to sue you afterwards if you figure out, figure out bugs in the system. So did you, don't tell any, anybody about it. And then we were like um, implementing something like uh, you get out of prison free card or something, like in the sense that we had like a document where all the major shareholders of the company had to sign it in, in advance so that we had like copies of the same document that we had physically with us in case the feds or the police were basically like trying to um, put us into prison or something so that we can say, no, it was actually a, a contract and we did that on purpose and they hired us to do so. So just that we are on the safe side and nobody can deny that it happened or something. And um, and yeah, we did basically security audits and I don't know, all kinds of things. And and what, what was important for me, I think at the time is that I kind of realized how broken infrastructure is, like in a sense that I mean, you can have the most secure server, most secure software ever. Like you have like hundreds of thousands of fuzzing algorithms trying to penetrate it and it's totally fail safe. It can be implemented in the best programming language, but then you have like a networked computer that is connected to it and that's the issue. So, and then everything is basically useless because you didn't, you, you never have access to or control over every part of the infrastructure, you only have partial access. And once you have partial access, you have to figure out how to get to like a state where you can assume that it's very hard to actually penetrate a system or something, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's what made me realize that network infrastructure is something that needs to be fixed because um, line of defenses and all the concepts that you have like a firewall and then you have like a somewhat goodish kind of network where all your uh, all your employees be, uh, are in and then you have like a second line of defense where all your servers are in or something this doesn't work in practice anyhow yeah. i mean especially during covid we kind of learned that everybody that works remotely needs full access to all systems all the time and everything that is related to samba or file sharing is basically the red line that is constantly being attacked like yeah. just the last two years for example with all the cyber attacks in the us happening were kind of proof of that right so and i think like trying to figure out like network systems or network security approaches that do not value a single point of failure but rather something like i don't know a statistical correctness or something or statistical analysis of malicious behaviors I think would be a huge step forward when it comes to network security or endpoint security, how most people call it these days. 
Yeah, I think the COVID uh, lockdown season actually gave big lessons on that um, because we see the infra is um, fairly okay from external point of view. The perimeters are strong, but the internals yeah. are like not that well. But as you mentioned, like when we started wanting to have an access to internal systems uh, working from <laughs> remote and things get messed up. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good point. I, I mean, for example, like most SOCs or I don't know, security operations centers or whatever you want to call them are usually externally hired because nobody has actually the knowledge and the people to actually have your own SOC internally, right? If you have that, then you're mostly a software company and you can do your own infrastructure anyways, right? But um, if they are hired externally, that means they need to have VPN access to be able to respond anyhow, right? Mm -hmm. And the last two years with like all the 40Gate stuff that was happening was basically a proof that if you manage the infrastructure via VPN and the VPN is proprietary, like it is everywhere literally with like Cisco VPN and 40Net and everything, then you just have to find a bug in the VPN gateway and then you're basically admin all the time. So mm -hmm. nobody can respond to that. And I don't know, the cyber attacks from last year was, were so in interesting to me because they were not attacking supply chain infrastructure, not attacking like endpoint software. They were attacking actually the network infrastructure mm -hmm. because once they got access to FortiGate and everything, then I don't know, they had like full admin control and nobody could actually see any trace of them, right? Because they were basically the admins of the domain then. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think this is also like a huge part that hopefully will get like more attention in future that VPNs are not the solution right now. We need better solution for that, that I don't know, has to be able to manage endpoints more securely and I don't know, more trusting in the sense that we assume that everybody can be a malicious admin locally at least. So, yeah. So you have played uh, multiple roles so far um, <laughs> in over around 20 years of experience or almost 20 years of experience in tech. Yeah, um, yeah some some words were like, I don't know, 18, 19 years yep. or something-ish or so. Yep. So you started as, as, as a tech guy, I mean, just fiddling around um, and then did <laughs> development and then did network securities. What do you enjoy the most? Are you the oh. network security guy or the developer or the... A good old uh, tinkerer. That, 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 that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I have a 3D printer, right? So I try to figure uh, figure out like how to solve things also in the physical world. And I don't know, I have like still like 50 Arduinos or something because I bought them on Alibaba and I have no clue what to do with them. Um, but I don't know. I wouldn't describe myself as more like a tinkerer or a do-it-yourself guy, but more like, I don't know. When it comes to like, like my professional work life, I think I'm more like on the network security side of things mm -hmm. because I think I have like, due to my own implementations and my own open source software projects, I have like, um, I don't know, a huge depth of the network protocols themselves because I had to read like lots of RFCs and oh boy, they are also buggy and naively implemented everywhere. So I don't know, just as an example, um, what will probably also come up in like the next couple of years will be problems with DNS again, um, because there was like a name rack um, CVE that was released like I think last year by some people that were analyzing SCADA systems. And they figured out that you can do, um, so DNS has like message compression in the sense that you have like, I don't know, the labels of the domain at one place. And then afterwards you can reference that basically to, um, to save storage. So I don't know if you have like example.com and the reply will be for like foo.example.com and bar.example.com, then you would have basically like two times the reference there to the first label in there. And, and a label in the DNS world is basically like your domain name. Mm -hmm. 
And the problem with that is that they reference everything with a byte-wise pointer. <laughs> so, and as everybody knows that, it's like a bad idea to do so <laughs> because you can create like a call stack loop in the sense that you just reference like endlessly until basically everything overflows or you can do a buffer overflow, right? And um, most naive implementations that run on like routers or infrastructure that are very limited in their memory constraints, um, they have like basically naive implementations there that do not do a loop check or something in advance. And um, yeah, it turns out that lots of the infrastructure was actually affected and everything. And um, hopefully we're able to like fix everything at least in the, I don't know, infrastructure world that is necessary for society to keep alive, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, talking about your projects, um, I see that it, there is no pattern for the projects. It's just everything. So you have worked. It's just, it's just random things, I guess. Yeah. Every time I'm like, I don't know, pissed off by a solution. Or so I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just like, hey, maybe I can build a thing for that. Maybe I can automate that. Or maybe I can build a script for that or something. Yeah, it varies from like, from zone <laughs> A to zone Z. It's uh, it's crazy because you start, you worked on like uh, technography, you worked on multiple web platform that solves the the real on desk problems you 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 even created a jukebox and that's that's insane <laughs> and uh, yeah um, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah the the um um the steganography tool was actually my introduction to like how the world works behind the scenes or something uh -huh. because i don't know it was like 1999 or something so it was technically still like a teenager or something and in my first website i thought like hey I, steganography is actually a cool topic, and I don't know, I was just digging through articles, news, and MIT Open Course on steganography at the time. And, um, and afterwards, I implemented everything in the sense that I wanted to figure out, because I don't know, I, I figured out like how steganography works. And basically, you try to find like squares in JPEG files, for example, that have like almost the same color that you cannot differ from your own eye, right? Mm -hmm. Like the human eye is not as precise as the um, RB, uh, RGB values in there. And um, and you can basically flatten out the differences in between, um, remember those bits and those bits you can basically set up in a header and then you can find everything. And if you have like huge areas, you can hide more data in it. Basically that's how it works. Um, and tricking like the compression algorithm or something. And and I don't know, at some point I, I decided, hey, it would be cool if I could build like a detector that is just, I don't know, trying to figure out what's this, what is the statistical likeliness of like, um, I don't know, this image containing steganographic information and I don't know, and then figuring out what kind of algorithms you could use potentially like in a statistical order um, in order to compress data there. Like, I don't know whether it's like ARC4 or something or I don't know, whatever kind of algorithms you need behind that. And um, yeah, it turns out at the time, um, actual agents were informed with that on the internet. And um, and yeah, the uh, Bundesnachrichtendienst uh, was, at our, uh, was at our door and uh, asking me to put down this thing because they need some time to fix it. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I was just, I don't know, just, I don't know, a teenager at the time having no clue how the world works or something. And um, yeah, that was my first experience with like how the um, authorities work behind the scenes or operate behind the scenes. <laughs> it was uh, very interesting to see. <laughs> But that never stopped you from like building more <laughs> more privacy tools. Like you, you even created like ad blogs and uh, the proxy, uh, sorry, browser extensions to you know fiddle around with uh, the, the the presentation data, things like that. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like when it comes to like tracking or malicious behaviors, I think like the perception of like what is tracking or what is privacy is wrong. I do not think that at this age you can stay private by not sending information. You can only say stay private by not looking like someone that cares about privacy. 
like in the sense if I don't know, hundreds of iOS users are in your network, chances are you are the one single Linux guy that everybody will spot on first try, right? Yeah. Like if, if they have like the network data available. And I don't know, as I'm using Arch Linux, I'm pretty much the only guy probably in my city or something <laughs> that is that is traceable very easily when people figure out that this specific version or something of my browser is, is, is being used. And I don't know. I think like privacy is more like the, the, the thing that makes you look stealth and like a swarm of network data so that you are statistically not in any form measurable like you're different. Like in a sense, I don't know, if everybody around you is using Windows 10 with Edge, then you should the edge and one windows then mm -hmm. because then nobody will realize that you're actually using linux or something behind the scenes but the problem with that is like also that something like a user agent or something like i don't know a vpn a sweden vpn or something is not enough you actually should change your networking behavior mm -hmm. because the order in which assets are requested or whether for example a fav icon is loaded or not as an example um is totally different on all browsers so therefore the um the order of requests and when they are done and in which order they are done, like whether they are done, for example, while processing still the CSS file or, or I don't know, when the web fonts, for example, are loaded or something, are enough to identify an engine and its version already mm -hmm. um, of, the, of the browser. And that's also like a huge problem, actually, that all those browsers completely behave differently when it comes to like network loading because it is actually an open door for all the i don't know isp or government side of tracking things right because then they, they just have to have like a list of timestamps network requests and the size of the network streams and that's enough to figure out like whether which browser you are using and which website you were using because they have an index of most popular websites because they can just reverse trace like what kind of ips i met to what kind of domains right because they operate the dns server as well and then they just scrape the all public data and if they figure out that you're like i don't know on the malicious board or something, or I don't know, an underground scene that is not so legal because of standards or something, then, then then they can easily figure out that you were this person that used it just by observing the encrypted traffic and the size of the encrypted traffic at, at a specific point in time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, usually when we say about like browser privacy, um, uh, the, the, the usual um, <laughs> idea is to have like maybe some of the uh, plugins so some abilities to kind of like disable javascripts but is that just enough or is it is the privacy on browsers is just beyond just blocking javascript um <laughs> that's an excellent question like i don't know as i said like when it comes to like um for example integration of like tls and everything um tls was vulnerable i think until like 1.3 or something and 1.3 and later is basically fixed hopefully this time i don't know um but back then you had, for example, I don't know, multiple vulnerabilities. And one was, for example, I don't know, the HTTP downgrade attack. It was pretty popular because all browsers were requesting HTTP by default. Then there was like the extension by um, the Electronic Frontier, uh, Frontiers Foundation, like the EFF, where they had like HTTPS everywhere and all known HTTPS websites basically just request HTTPS by default now, which was a huge step. And I don't know, then afterwards you had like a side channel attack possibility that <laughs> Um, TLS itself wasn't worth anything if you had like a vulnerable um, DNS channel because then you could say, hey, I'm actually this this um, specific certificate and then you had basically something that is Cloudflare doing all the time. Cloudflare is basically like an intermediate proxy behind like HTTPS connections, right? And during the renegotiation process of like um, um, en encryption certificates, like 
because a server can host like more more than one virtual host, right? So I don't know, foo.com, bar.com, and example.com or something. And once you connect to it, the problem is that HTTP has on its like inside application layer or something, the host um, header in HTTP. And that means you theoretically would have to decrypt everything in order to figure out whether you're actually inside this um, SSL session for this specific server or something. And if you would, I don't know, a better solution would be probably to integrate it more directly with TLS. And that's basically what they did with TLS 1.3. Mm -hmm. um, and before that, you had like a side channel, like, um, I don't know, a computer or a browser was basically starting a session. Then the server said, hey, I have these certificates available. Do you want to connect to this host or this host or this host? And then the browser was, oh, hang on a second. I need to verify everything. And then basically it did like a DNS request to the domain, figure out the IP, call back, oh yeah, this is actually this domain that I want to connect to. And then it was choosing certificates. And when once the DNS channel was unencrypted, like, I don't know, an enterprise setup or something, then everything was, I don't know, also like a problem. And now we have like DNS over TLS, which is kind of pointless because it's using a custom port and literally Vodafone here in Germany blocks just a port 853 and therefore nobody can use encrypted DLS. And you're like, okay, cool, nice, nice. And um, yeah, so, so like conceptually, I think it will move forward to more HTTPS based transport layers because they're undetectable mm -hmm. and we need to keep the internet alive and how it works because nobody will pay for an internet connection if you cannot use a website, right? Yeah. So I hope that in future, actually I do not hope, but I think that in future more will more other protocols that are necessary for our infrastructure will move to HAPS as a transport layer. Um, of course, architecturally, it's like not the smartest way to do things like in the sense of like, I don't know, efficiency and everything, but um, it's the best thing to masquerade everything and to not be traceable at all, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Um, your projects are um, categorized in either prototype or alpha or the full versions. Uh, <laughs> usually, the the tendency, at least for me, like if it's a prototype, then I probably don't like just uh, post it on the on the website. But you kind of open <laughs> about it. What what was the thought process on like? Is is it like a routine? Um, uh, procedures for you like just to have a prototype just pushed and that gives you a push that okay i need to start working on it uh, oh gosh that, that, that's a tough question um i don't know i learned development mostly like in the us like in the sense of like how to develop everything using scrum and everything and i don't know the agile development process and how to reiterate your own thoughts and your own concepts and architectures but i don't know i think a prototype for me is like thing that I built for like a proof of concept. Like if I have like an idea in my mind and a system and an architecture and, and somewhat blurry lines in between where I do not know whether I can actually bridge the gap in between, um, then this is like a prototype for me. And then alpha is for me like the reiteration of the prototype that I had to refactor because the prototype was total crap code. <laughs> and um, I don't know, and somewhat at a beta point, I'm getting a feeling, okay, now this is getting more stable and maybe now I can I can use this for like at least a year or something. And um, yeah, I guess this is like how I like would categorize like most projects or something, depending on like semantic versioning and everything that everybody ignores anyways, but yeah. But it's interesting way of doing it because when I had an idea in mind, it's a prototype. It always remains in prototype. <laughs> yeah, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some projects always like remain in prototype because you 
I don't know, just don't have like full-time development resources yeah. and, and that you need in order to make it not a prototype anymore and to make it stable and, I don't know, maybe reuse it. And then you have like the library thinking, you're like, oh shit, how do I put this like in the library now? This is like impossible or something, right? And this, are, I don't know, all kinds of things that make, make things like more stable. But um, yeah, of course you have the problem that you usually don't have like the full-time yeah. development resources that, I don't know, Google has, for example, or something, yeah, right? True. But I think it's a good uh, um, habit. I probably will uh, st <laughs> steal it from you and then uh, <laughs> sure. practice it in my life as well. Because leaving a prototype on my on my Git pages and probably it gives me a <laughs> idea that oh, I need to work on this one. Otherwise, it just remains in in thoughts. It just yeah. I mean, when we articulate something, like when people say it rightly, like when you write down things, I think things will get become more clearer. Uh, you'll start yeah, working yeah. on it more clearer. So it's a uh, yeah. So. Thanks for that one. I will definitely <laughs> practice uh, adding more prototypes in my projects. <laughs> um, before we wind up, um, what's your um, suggestions or comments or advice to people who are aspiring InfoSec or tech or other open source? I don't know. How, how did a friend of mine put it? The only thing that is important is enumeration. <laughs> like, uh, but that's like, I don't know, meanwhile, probably almost a meme or something. Um, um, so, so like when, I mean, there's always like two different perceptions, right? The blue team side that tries to react as fast as possible, even when they're wrong, because you cannot observe everything. And the red team side and red team side has like the benefit and the strategical game advantage in like a game theory sense that their side of the equilibrium has like, I don't know, a one to million statistic or something. They just have to find one single bug in the system of out of millions. And then they have like full control over the system. This, this is like the advantage of a red team versus the blue team cannot actually secure everything all the time because I don't know, even if you have something as simple as Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel that is was at the time just a spreadsheet editor it's so vulnerable that you cannot control it right and i don't know and you somehow have to provide infrastructure for your company if you operate it right so i guess that when thinking about like networking um what helped me really a lot is like the peer-to-peer -peer thinking like in the sense that um you do not have control over all nodes at all time you do not have to have like control, full control about all software is operating. You just have to assume that somebody can be malicious at any time. And once you respect it in your system and your architecture thinking, you can build like whole new architectures that are actually fail safe, not on an N equals one scale, like on one machine, but on N being like the whole company scheme or something, right? And I don't know, like, for example, if you have like an endpoint security management software, there's no point in having like a centralized server there. It can be just a statistical proof of work or something or proof of like network behavior in that sense where other endpoints are just analyzing this one specific node and figure out, hey, actually the traffic behavior kind of changed. Now it's requesting like hundreds of megabytes on Zamba and it ne did never do that before in like the last year. So probably it's been infiltrated. We should just rewrite our own network rules to just block it out of our network, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be like the simple solution for like a peer-to-peer -peer firewall, for example. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, sadly, you cannot make much money with peer-to-peer. -peer. That's probably why most um, uh, solution providers um, do not offer peer-to-peer -peer solutions there because they need to maintain their own kind of boxes that they can sell that other people can rent and everything, right? So, but I hope that at some point we realize that everything is just a statistic. Like we're always statistically true and statistically wrong. So why is there this not 
been applied in like networking security, for example. That's like the thing that I'm trying to explore with my open source projects and with like Thalion and everything. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was fun talking to you. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much, Chris, for sharing your experience and uh, also giving some good insights of like how to maintain those uh, <laughs> sanity between all the projects that you're working on. It's 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 amazing. It's brilliant. I will <laughs> definitely adopt those habits. Uh, especially mm-hmm. the prototype one is something that I was very curious about. I wanted to hear what's your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll definitely adopt mm-hmm. that one. Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. We'll talk to you on the next one. Thank you.